A lot of people have coronavirus on the mind right now. Everyone seems to be talking about it on the news, online, in the office or school. And now that the virus has officially become a pandemic, well, that brings certain images to mind, thanks in part to Hollywood. The greatest medical crisis of all time. We can't stop it. Begins. Your town is being quarantined. On day one, there were two people, and then four, and then 16. In three months, it's a billion. That's where we're heading. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we want to talk about another outbreak of a very different virus. One where doctors are finally saying there's good news. I have been given a very good gift from DRC, my own continent, Africa. Uh, We have now had two weeks without a single reported case of Ebola. And there are currently no patients receiving treatment. This is very good news. The most recent Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo began in August 2018 and was projected to last six months. It lasted nearly three times that long. More than 2,200 people died. But now, doctors say the country's last Ebola patient has been discharged. While the Ebola outbreak was still raging, we talked to my colleague Catherine Soy. She'd been going back and forth to Beni, which was one of the hardest-hit cities in the DRC, reporting on why the fight to stop the disease was so difficult. From the minute you get to the airport, you get this sense that just something is different. At every turn from the airport and every corner you turn in the city, you'll find um, all these you know, medical checkpoints that have been set up Every 10 minutes, there's a checkpoint where your health workers have to check your temperature. And the minute your temperature is higher, they have to take you to hospital because it could be Ebola in any other country. It could be anything else, a fever, anything. But here, it's very possible that you could be sick. It was a big change for the people who lived in this area to be stopped every 10 minutes on their travels. The Ebola outbreak changed their lives in a lot of other ways, too. You have to be a few meters, two meters away from each other uh, so that you don't get infected. You cannot um, greet each other. Uh, You have to, you know, tap each other with your uh, elbows uh, because, you know, to prevent infection. So that was very strange to us. And the fact that these people, Congolese, are very um, emotional people. They're very touchy people. They like to hug and things like that. So you can imagine how this is a life-changing thing for them. Catherine traveled to Beni quite a few times over the course of the Ebola outbreak. Her reports feature Beni's bustling city center and also the more remote villages throughout the territory. There are apartment buildings and clustered communities, paved roads, and dirt paths lined with palm trees. Around 200,000 people live in the very diverse Beni territory, and it was hard to spread information to all of them about what the Ebola virus is and how to contain it. When the outbreak first started, that lack of information was especially deadly. 
This latest outbreak uh, started in August 2018, and it started at a place called Mangina in Beni territory. We traveled there when we were in Beni and met some of the people who were first affected. So we talked to uh, Kambale Mundoleka. Kambale, um, his family was the first one. That's a ground zero family. It was the first family to be affected. My aunt got sick first. Relatives nursed her until she died. His aunt is the one who first got sick. And obviously, as per the culture um, of the Congolese there, people went took care of her when she was sick. And when she died, they took care of her body, washing it and then burying it. So all the people who attended that burial, 12 of them died, uh, including uh, the mother. Let's take a step back here for a minute. Kambale's story shows us just how highly infectious Ebola is. And we wanted to know more about that. So we went to an expert. My name is Audrey Landman, and uh, I've been working with uh, MSF for 13 years now. Audrey Landman, from Doctors Without Borders, told us how the very nature of Ebola makes it hard to eradicate. Ebola is a fever virus, and the symptoms of the disease are actually quite classic. You start with a few symptoms as uh, fever and diarrhea and uh, joint pain. And very quickly, uh, your um, vital organs uh, start to dysfunction. So fever, diarrhea, organs failing. These are symptoms that Congolese people think they know. It resembles a lot to uh, some other diseases that are quite uh, common in the area. For instance, malaria. And that resemblance is dangerous. Because when people think it's malaria, they start treating it themselves. And by the time they realize it could be Ebola, it's too late. The whole time they delayed going to the doctor, they might have been making other people sick. The disease uh, spreads through body fluid. So people get contaminated through body fluid, such as sweat. So when somebody dies from Ebola, that person is still contagious for up to 48 hours. And uh, when a person dies, this is when the virus is the, the strongest. Just think about that. When a patient dies, that's when the Ebola virus is at its strongest. That's because of how the virus works. It's always growing. It embeds itself in cells within the immune system a system that usually fights foreign invaders. But the Ebola virus is different. It tricks the cells into helping the virus multiply instead of destroying it. It copies itself thousands of times. Then the copies exit the host cell and go on to infect other cells in the body, growing exponentially. That's what doctors mean when they say the viral load is increasing. More and more cells are damaged, toxins are released into the bloodstream, and the patient gets sicker. Doctors were administering vaccines in the province, but the big fear was that as the virus replicated, it could mutate, and the new mutations could be immune to those vaccines. All the more reason why containing this strain of Ebola was so critical. So how do you contain Ebola? How do you stop it? I think a lot of, uh, of the success of the, the response is linked to this community engagement. I think today the population in North Kivu really needs 
to be part of the response and uh, needs to be listened to. Catherine knows a little bit about that. She tells us that groups like the World Health Organization are working with community leaders to bolster the aid efforts. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first, we need to talk about the other obstacle that was impeding those same efforts, a long history of conflict in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Because there's been a lot of fighting uh, in Beni. The Democratic Republic of Congo is facing its deadliest outbreak of Ebola ever. And importantly, a civil war is disrupting efforts to contain it. The Ugandan group known as the ADF killed 15 peacekeepers in North Kivu province. Protesters carry crosses for Congolese killed, kidnapped and beaten by armed rebels. There are more than 18,000 UN peacekeepers in eastern DRC. They've been there for two decades, trying to stop all kinds of armed groups in the area from fighting. But the fighting continues. And when we talk to Catherine, when there were still new cases of Ebola being reported every week, she said the conflict made stopping the disease even more complicated. We've seen a lot of rebel attacks in that area. We've seen health workers uh, being attacked. In fact, since the outbreak started, about a dozen or so health workers have been attacked by rebels. Dozens of treatment centers have also been attacked. And this makes the work of health workers very, very difficult. We were coming from a burial when our team was attacked by a group of people. They stoned our car and beat us up. We are lucky we escaped. We have been talking to World Health officials. We even talked to the World Health Organization Director General, uh, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, who says that safety is a priority for them, that they cannot deploy health workers in areas uh, that are unsafe. We are heartbroken that people have died in the line of duty as they work to save others. And these are the areas where people are still getting infected. Uh, we see uh, health workers being evacuated, humanitarian organizations evacuating um, their staff members, operations uh, against Ebola also being scaled back. And this makes the job of health workers very, very difficult. It might seem counterintuitive that people would attack healthcare centers in the middle of an Ebola outbreak. But Catherine told us why. Imagine you're in a treatment center. You're isolated from everybody. The only person who's coming to see you is a doctor. When the outbreak started, the government sent staff, uh, Doctors Without Borders, the UN Child Agency, um, UNICEF, uh, World Health Organization. So there's all these people, strangers literally, who you know descended upon Benny wearing all this um, biosuits that make them look like, you know, people coming from space. So these aid workers come in wearing strange biohazard suits, as Catherine says, and they're changing up the culture. They're demanding people follow new rules like no hugging. And they tell people to greet each other using their elbows. And then they suggested this change. If you know about Congolese, their burials are very elaborate. When someone dies, um, they really take care of the body. They wash the body. They have a series of wakes. Uh, and then they bury the person in a very elaborate way. Hundreds of people turn up uh, to uh, bid that uh, person farewell. But now the government has banned all that. 
people are not allowed to touch dead bodies people are not allowed to even bury um, their loved ones so you can imagine when someone dies of ebola all these you know health workers and volunteers dressed in this uh, bio suits come and take away the body um, and bury in this mass grave uh, where the government has set aside for uh, people who've died from ebola this causes a lot of distress and we saw this in the villages that we went and so the mistrust escalated and then there were politicians who were telling uh, the people that this disease is being brought by foreigners to wipe you out. So because of that and because of that mistrust, people started attacking uh, these health workers. And then again, there are rebel groups in that area that uh, also started, you know, attacking health workers, attacking treatment facilities, saying that these people are bringing uh, this, this disease that we don't know. So that solution that Audrey Landman from Doctors Without Borders mentioned earlier, health workers and community leaders working together, Catherine says she saw that too, firsthand during her trips to Beni. We met people with very positive stories. Uh, We met people who lost so many relatives because of Ebola. And we also met people who are trying to encourage others to come for treatment, encourage others to get vaccinations against Ebola. And now um, World Health Organization and other humanitarian organizations are using community leaders, are using uh, religious leaders to sort of encourage and convince uh, people in their villages to come uh, when they get sick, to come for treatment. And among those people, we met Esther Maziao. She's a community leader, very, very vibrant woman. And initially she was one of those who had really rejected health workers, really rejected that there's a disease. But now she tells us that she has watched a lot of people die and she took herself uh, for vaccination. I was vaccinated in Mangina to show my people there's nothing wrong with it. I tell them this is a war we're fighting. Now she's been talking to people. They are listening to her and she's bringing more and more people for vaccinations. I was convinced by our community leader. I came for the vaccination with my children because I don't want this disease to find us in our house. So people listen to her, which is a very positive thing. Esther wasn't the only one setting an example. Catherine says many community leaders helped to counter the disinformation campaigns in Beni. So um, health workers that we talk to from the World Health Organization say that people who are loved, people who are popular, uh, not just people like Esther, also, you know, artists, local actors, musicians. So we went to one town and at the market, there was this uh, very popular Benny musician and actors. And so they go to these towns and gather people around, do this kids simulating uh, a death, simulating how uh, when someone dies, how that uh, body should be handled. And then they have all these sing- songs about Ebola and you know how dangerous it is and how people should get help uh, once they realize they're sick or once someone in their village is sick. So people go there and enjoy themselves. It's, it's, it's a fan way of just talking about a very serious issue, a very dangerous disease. Uh, and, and from that, people are actually listening and, you know, gains have been made on that front. 
We've talked about the doctors and the community leaders, but what about the people most directly affected by this outbreak? Catherine tells us about some of the patients she's met. So this is what is very personal to me and what affected me the most uh, when I was in Beni. We visited treatment centers, for example, uh, one treatment center in Beni uh, that is run by Doctors Without Borders. And we met two people, in particular children. So one girl, uh, I'm not going to say their names because of the privacy, but one girl um, we met in this treatment center was battling for her life. Uh, Doctors that were trying uh, to treat her, she was in so much pain, she was groaning, and you know, she was sleeping in this um, cubicle uh, that had this very thick covers that you cannot even get in if you're not a doctor because she was so infectious at the time. She was almost dying and the doctors were saying that they're just trying to manage her, manage her pain. She was she was brought in very late in the last stages of Ebola. Unfortunately, she died after a few days. But then on the flip side, uh, we met another child who was born premature. The mother died immediately after giving birth and the doctors were perplexed by this little girl because everything about her indicated that she would have Ebola. She was really positive, her blood, the mother. The placenta was positive. The umbilical cord was positive. The liquid was positive. The saliva inside of the baby mouth was positive. But the blood of the girl, the blood of the baby, was negative. When we met her, she was three weeks old. And, you know, the doctors were saying she was growing stronger every day. We followed up um, on the baby and we were told that she's doing just fine and she has gone home. So that is very positive. The last patient being treated for Ebola in the DRC has been discharged and there have been no new cases for at least two weeks. The patient, Masika Semida, thanked her doctors as medical staff presented her with paperwork, showing a clean bill of health. Behind her, celebrations erupted. So we checked back in with Catherine Soy on what happens next. Discharging the last Ebola survivor from a treatment center in Beni is really a huge victory. And having covered this epidemic for 20 months or so, I felt such satisfaction and joy. And I can just imagine the feeling of those who live in that region. It means that these people can now have a normal life again. They can socialize and trade without fear. So many people I've talked to over the years um, have lost loved ones. So many lives have been affected. But again, we also have to bear in mind that this is not quite the end. Masika, I think, uh, had uh, 46 people that she came in touch with and health workers are monitoring those people for symptoms. Then we have other, other, uh, a few other people who were discharged recently. Health workers also monitoring people who came in contact with these survivors. And if by April 12th there are no more infections recorded, then the Democratic Republic of Congo will finally be declared uh, Ebola-free. And this is just amazing news. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Telve with Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, 
Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan sound designed this episode. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Catherine Soy and Moses Machoka. You can meet the many people whose lives were on the line in Catherine's reports on Al Jazeera's YouTube page. We'll be back.